Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast bringing you this sports show. Well, the Golden State Warriors are once again NBA champions. We'll talk about that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 113 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America here on Wednesday, June 13, 2018, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America Monday through Friday with a brand new show on Wednesday nights on the East Coast, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available after that broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show later on Wednesday night. On iTunes, under The Bridge Sports Podcast, or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. The Washington Capitals finally won a Stanley Cup and celebrated and continue to celebrate like a team that was without one since 1974. Future Hall of Famer Alex Ovechkin waited 13 years for one and is seemingly trying to drink for every one of those seasons he came up empty in winning one. It was finally, indeed, the Caps year. And sticking to hockey... Let's flash back to around this time last year when we highlighted a tradition unlike any other, throwing things onto a hockey rink. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. the National Hockey League is often viewed as a niche sport, its fans bleed for the sport and for their teams with unparalleled passion. That passion only grows come playoff time and becomes an unabashed obsession for fans of teams who have the honor of playing for the Stanley Cup. The traditions of the sport also hold strong, from not touching said Stanley Cup unless it's won to avoid a curse to playoff beards, sudden death overtimes, and throwing objects onto the ice. The most popular item for the latter is hats, which will blanket the ice for a home player who acquires three goals in one game. But other inanimate objects have also been known to make their way over the glass, some symbolic and others downright gross. 
there were burgers thrown in Ottawa when Senators goalie Andrew Hammond, affectionately known as the Hamburglar, had a solid performance in the pipes. There were waffles thrown in Toronto when the Maple Leafs were playing poorly and a fan wanted them to wake up and eat some breakfast. There were rubber rats thrown in Florida as Panthers fans paid a rat trick tribute to Scott Mellenby, who killed a rat in the locker room by shooting it across the floor like a hockey puck before a game in 1996. There's been octopuses thrown in Detroit, a tradition that dates back to 1952 when two seafood owners wanted to remind the Red Wings just how many wins they needed in order to win the Stanley Cup. And in case you're unfamiliar with biology, that number would be eight. There was catfish thrown in Nashville when Predators fans responded to Detroit's tradition back in 2002. That tradition continues today, and even made its way all the way from Nashville to Pittsburgh when the Predators faced off against the Penguins in Game 1 of the Stanley Cup Finals. Though no one expected to see any catfish on ice until the Predators got back to Nashville, that changed when a whiskered mudcat plopped down on the ice in the second period with the Penguins leading the Preds 3 to nothing. The perpetrator was Jake Waddell, who went through quite the trouble to pull off the prank. He was visiting family in Ohio for Memorial Day weekend, so the trip to the game wasn't necessarily as difficult as the preparation for the throw was. Those sea markets in Pittsburgh did their best to prevent any catfish catastrophes going as far as to require an ID before purchases were made. Jake made sure to come to the city well-prepared. Before the trip, he bought a catfish in Tennessee, sprayed it down with Old Spice cologne, and threw it in a cooler for the long drive ahead. On game night, he went to a cousin's house, filleted the fish, cut out half of its spine, and proceeded to run it over several times with his truck to try and flatten it. That, of course, made it easier to vacuum pack and conceal the catfish. But because the head was too big to fit the fish in his boot, he stored it away between his underwear and a pair of compression shorts hidden within some baggy pants. Once in the arena, he headed down from his upper deck seats to the lower section, with the catfish now wrapped in a free t-shirt from the pregame giveaway after making the switch in the restroom. Then all that was left was the toss, which was executed with the precision of a fish thrower from a famed Seattle fish market. Though Jake would be escorted away by security and detained, the act actually seemed to spirit the Preds, who eventually tied the game at three before losing by two. Jake was charged with disorderly conduct, possessing an instrument of crime, and disrupting a meeting. Thankfully, the charges were dropped from Jake, who lovingly referred to himself as a dumb redneck with a bad idea while describing himself and the event. One thing is for certain, players on both sides better be ready to duck when the series gets back to Nashville. I'm John Lund. 
For sports news, red like real news. Let's take a quick break to drink some beer from the Stanley Cup. When we come back, we'll talk to an NBA writer about the NBA Finals, the Summer of LeBron, part whatever we're at now, and more. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text into the bridge 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. This week, we want to know, will LeBron James leave the Cleveland Cavaliers and why? Now to this week's guest in Josh Eberly. He's a writer for Hoop Magazine, host of the Hot Takes and Shot Fakes podcast, and friend of the show who can say he's come on the bridge now as many times as Michael Jordan came back to the NBA. We'll chat all things NBA Finals and the major storylines from that and the season in general, the summer of LeBron and other potential off-season happenings, some revisionist history with one Kobe Bean Bryant, ranking the past 17 NBA Finals, and more. You can follow Josh on Twitter. He's at Josh Eberly. That's J-O-S-H-E-B-E-R-L-E-Y. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Josh Eberly. He's a writer for Hoop Magazine, host of the Hot Takes and Shot Fakes podcast and friend of the show. Josh, thanks so much for coming back on. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Good to talk to you right after the NBA Finals, though unfortunately they ended a little bit sooner than NBA fans, NBA writers, those within the Twitter community would have hoped. But I guess the end result was expected, at least from what everybody said before the season started. Before we get into that, I wanted to ask, regardless of the end result of who won the title this year, is there a storyline you'll remember most from the 2017-2018 season? So, storyline I'll remember most. You know, you think I'd be better prepared because I asked the same question to people in a roundtable this week. But I, I'm struggling with what the dominant storyline is from this year. I mean, last year, it definitely felt like it was Russell Westbrook's triple-double um, MVP year. It felt like, you know, Isaiah Thomas playing through his sister's death in the playoffs. Um, I, those, those were memorable moments for me. This year, I guess, in the playoffs, I, I would say maybe the Chris Paul injury is, is one of the more memorable moments. And, and honestly, the Brian Colangelo dupe scenario. I think those are the two things 10 years from now I might remember. Like, what if Chris Paul is healthy? And, man, can you remember when that GM got fired for his wife creating fake Twitters? But, but on, honestly, the finals probably won't register on that high of a level. I did read you asking that question to the roundtable for Hoop Magazine, so I thought I would steal it. And I did like one of the answers <laughs> saying that it was NBA Twitter really just going bananas this season and right before the season was when Kevin Durant was found to have some burner accounts. We had some NBA players not be afraid to speak their mind on Twitter. Joel Embiid rose to the top of NBA Twitter. And then, as you mentioned, the Brian Colangelo fiasco happened. So as someone that's immersed in NBA Twitter, maybe you should take some credit for you guys this season. Yeah, maybe. I, you know, it is, it was, 
this year was just weird. Like honestly, I I felt like I've never spent more time over an entire NBA season not talking about basketball. There was just always some crazy storyline going on with the Eric Bledsoe hair salon moment, the Chris Paul secret tunnel, um, J.R. Smith throwing the can of soup. Like it, it felt like there was some really weird but delicious drama for for NBA Twitter to discuss every single day. Yeah, when the season ended and people were doing the what is the most wild moment from the season, it's always amazing to remember exactly what happened because so much does happen that you just forget about the last thing and only remember the next thing. But yes, this year was incredible off the court compared to what was on the court, which also lived up to the hype. We ended up, speaking of that, with an NBA Finals matchup that was assumed by the majority before the season with the team assumed to win in the Golden State Warriors coming through with their third title in four years. Did that end result of Golden State beating the Cavs surprise you at all? No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know what? It, it was since Durant signed. Like, I, I mean, I think I was on the show last year, and be- before Kevin Durant signed with the Warriors, I felt like the Warriors were favorites in 2017. It just felt like 2016 was the perfect storm. You know, LeBron at, uh, going back-to-back for 41-point games in elimination, Kyrie chipping in at 41 that first game, playing big down the stretch, Draymond suspension. Uh, it, it just felt like everything had to go right for, for the Cavaliers to win in 2016. So even before they signed KD, I thought the Warriors were winning in 2017. So, you know, as you can imagine, when they signed KD, it kind of felt like the next three or four were, were a sure thing. And um, so you know, as the season plays out and, and the Rockets came to relevance, it was kind of nice that they proposed, you know, somewhat of a threat, although I, I'm, I'm still rather unsure how much you know, the Rockets being excellent versus the Warriors being disinterested really led to seven. But we got, you know, we got one seven-game series. We had a couple competitive games in the finals, and I think that's even more than I could have hoped for coming into the playoffs. That continues to be the craziest part for me about the storyline of the Golden State Warriors is that it seems like they sometimes need to turn on a switch and almost do what you would do playing pickup basketball when you go down by a couple of points saying to your teammates, all right, let's start playing now as a joke. Seemed like they did that in game one. Once the game went into overtime, it was like, okay, let's turn things on and maybe we'll try to win. Is there a scenario where you think the Cavs could have made that a series and, and maybe even go as far as winning the finals. If that was making yeah. different moves around the trade deadline, if that was keeping Kyrie, is there something they could have done to at least make it interesting? See, like, I think this is a trap because I, you know, it's kind of like thinking the same thing. Allegedly one of the Cavs players felt that if they had Kyrie, they win the finals this year. But I think the effort and, you know, the collective play of the Warriors rises if the collective play of the Cavaliers rises. And, you know, we always talk about good teams playing down to their competition, and that kind of felt what was like what was going on. And, and as great as LeBron was in that first game, you know, that was the only one I thought they were going to win. Uh, you know, regardless of the, if they pulled it out or not, it would have made the series more interesting. Maybe you're down two one at some point, still fighting, but it, it it just felt like okay, if Kyrie's there, then maybe Steph isn't shooting from 35 feet in a slump with with no regard because they know they can win anyway. And and it was it was similar with the Houston Rockets, where I do think if Chris Paul was healthy, there's a legit chance the Rockets move on because they've fallen down that far. But if you watch that, 
that Warriors team in game six and seven of the conference finals in the first half. I've never seen a team, and honestly, not hyperbole, honestly, I've never seen a team less interested in giving maximum effort in an elimination game as I did with the Warriors in game six, first half of game six and seven of the conference finals. Just, just no interest whatsoever in playing defense. Kevin Durant wasn't putting a body on anyone for a box out. They come out in the third quarter in both of those games and just blow the doors off them. Buckle down on D. Rockets can't get anything. And it's just amazing and infuriating that a team is so talented, they know if they give maximum effort for a single quarter, they can win an elimination game in the conference finals. And I, that was just the vibe for me. Yeah, it's almost like that team needs to build a 40-point lead or so in that first half and take full advantage of them not caring. So when they do care, the lead is just too insurmountable for them to pass. But so far, we've unfortunately yet to see it for those that would like to see somebody else to throw in the Warriors at some point. Game one was the turning point. Game one will be talked about for years to come not only for the end results, what happened with J.R. Smith seemingly forgetting simple basketball knowledge, but just leading up to that in the last minute of the game from the LeBron overturned charge call to George Hill missing the second free throw, there's things that Cavaliers fans will look back on in disgust probably for the rest of their fandom based on that, and that really did swing the series, as we know, even for the worst with their star player breaking his hand because of the frustrations of Game 1. What would you have changed from that game, especially from that last minute? What do you think was the biggest turning point of those three instances or just in general from what ended up being the Cavs' demise to lose that first game? You know what it felt like? It felt like all three mistakes were like, that point in the movie where the protagonist is about to gun down the antagonist, LeBron's middle of the street, pistol pulled, kill shot lined up, and then you hear the shot and the camera turns and, and LeBron's bleeding and, and uh, George Hill's hit him and he staggers. <laughs> and the next, there's another shot and another hole comes through LeBron and, and JR shot him. And, and finally, you know, he looks over at Lou and Lou pulls the final trigger. Like it, it was just so narratively perfect picturesque for like the LeBron has no help. Uh, LeBron is carrying these bums, you know, o- overkill talk, which I think at times can be really harsh for the Cavaliers that contribute. And then you just watch that final sequence play out and, and you look at the game that he had and there's no other way to feel about that other than that he was just betrayed by his own God. The, the lack of, you know, I, Everything about that was crazy. In game six and seven against Boston, George Hill is 11 of 12 from the free throw line. You know, in the first game against the Warriors, it's not an elimination game. He goes one of two. You know, if he hits that free throw, it's over. No one in the NBA likes to shoot more than J.R. Smith. No one in the NBA, his nickname is Swish. He, he's, he's on record for wanting to take hard shots. And there he was with four seconds left with his back turned Durant on him and didn't flow one up. I mean, Ty Lue is criticized and apparently is, is more than a, a relationships coach and then didn't even think to call time. I mean, everything about that play was just awful. And that's probably what, if we remember anything with the finals, we'll remember that spoiled effort because LeBron played pretty much a perfect game and it was just disastrous. I don't necessarily hate the hand situation. LeBron taking out his frustrations after the game, as we found out after the series, pulling a Amari Stoudemire, pulling a Kevin Brown from the Yankees days. The list goes on of 
flubs of somebody taking out their frustrations and then hurting themselves. The problem that I had with the whole thing is that the reporters and especially the beat writers that watch LeBron's every move and decided not to report it, which in a sense is fine. Some part of me as a former journalist likes the 1950s style way of doing things where you were close with the players, you knew the inner workings of what was happening in their private lives or on the field and didn't always put out into the public what they wouldn't want the public to know. But in 2018, that world is completely gone and we need to know everything as quick as it happens. For guys like Brian Windhorse and Dave McMiniman and... The list goes on who watch LeBron's every move when he's limping, what he's eating, what he does after the game. To not know that there was something wrong with his hand for three games until he made the announcement after game four to switch the narrative in a sense to that, I, I can't believe. And I was wondering, as someone that also writes about the NBA, if you felt similar to that. I feel like they know. I feel like they should have reported it. I think they gave him a little bailout with the situation and let him do it on his terms, and I'm just confused as to why they decided to go that route. Yeah, you know, I, I can't say with any certainty whether they knew or didn't know. I, it, it, it's tough. I, it it kind of took me off guard. You know, there are people who initially were like, oh, it's fake. I'm like, it's not fake. You know, like LeBron is not really that... PR-centric that he's trying to come up with, like, an excuse. He played a great series, but, but here's, here's my thing overall at the hand. I really don't care because it's self-inflicted. Like, you know, that there's two takes. The people who hate LeBron is like, oh, it's fake. He's coming up with an excuse. And people who love LeBron were like, wow, he averaged a triple. He's a 30-point triple-double a game after breaking his hand. Like, I'm not going to give him points for punching a whiteboard and playing on because that was his own stupid decision. And I'm not going to knock him and pretend this is like somehow dishonest. I think he, you know, he's a competitor. He knew they needed every advantage that they could possibly muster. So of course he wasn't going to say anything, tell the Warriors that he was, you know, playing hurt. That doesn't do them any favors. I do. I, again, I don't know if they would have known guys like Lloyd Varden, Windhorst, McManaman, you know, they might've, but here's the other thing. I think Windhorst is so in the bag that, LeBron would have just simply told him, you're going to hold this. And, and I, I, like, like you said, I mean, there's a, there's a type of journalist who would have said, like, you know, I got to report this. That's my job. And there's a type of reporter that would have said, I'm happy to take the breadcrumbs that you give me. And, and I appreciate the access and the self-importance that comes with being in LeBron's bag. And I think that's more of the vibe that you get with those guys a lot of the time. Right. And like I said, I'm fine with hiding something like that because as LeBron probably thought and should have, he doesn't want Draymond Green coming down every possession and slapping his hand on the way by to make things a little bit more uncomfortable. Once people knew that that was going to be a weakness, they would definitely have exploited it. But if, if you're making your career covering LeBron's every move from where he's boarding planes in the offseason to what's happening with what team he's going to sign for, and then one of the most important news pieces of the NBA Finals is left until LeBron decides to say it is sort of like just throwing your hat into the journalism ring and saying, well, the, these are the cards I was dealt. This is what I, I do with this specific player, and we'll just have to move on with it. It just seemed like it was a, 
a double standard in a sense for some of the reporting that they've done in the past. But as you mentioned, a self-inflicted wound like that, it's hard to have sympathy for when you end up putting that on yourself and have to then play with it and seemingly play well with it for this, at least games two and three. Doing the push-ups, doing the handshakes with the team, everything looked fine, but we could see a little bit of swelling, I guess, in the uh, Game 4 pictures. Is there a team that you wish the Warriors played? Whether or not they would have won the series, could have advanced to these Eastern Conference Finals and put a run into them. Would that be the Celtics or just even a team in general that didn't make it that far that you would have at least liked to see get to the NBA Finals and maybe give them a run? Um... (laughs) The 2012-13 Miami, <laughs> the 2000-2001 Los Angeles Lakers. Uh, I, there was no matchup this year for me where I kind of thought, yeah, these guys might give them a real run. And uh, I, I remember last year kind of talking myself into Utah a little bit. Like, oh, yeah, they haven't really played a dominant rim protector like Rudy Gobert. I mean, Utah could give these guys a run. And then we know how that series was. So, yeah, no, until... I, 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 until something else comes up, there was no series other than Houston that really piqued my interest in any way. Yeah, Boston has seemingly been the go-to for a question like that, but without Gordon Hayward and Kyrie Irving, I can't see it being much different of a series just with the youth that's still on that team. It would have been great for their experience, but in general, maybe one game if, as you mentioned, the Warriors just didn't care until the end of the fourth quarter and by that time it was like well we'll give them one and then we could win on our home court speaking of Kevin Durant and focusing on some of the players here at least the top three in people's eyes we've talked about Kevin Durant on the show before and wax poetically when he decided to go to Golden State He's now won two finals MVPs. He now has the two back-to-back titles. He did prove his worth in this NBA finals and throughout the playoffs as well. For Steph to have such an awful game in an NBA finals, where statistically, if that happens, the team doesn't even come close to winning, having to carry, in a sense, for that game and continuing to have that excellence for the entire series where does this put Kevin Durant now? How do you think we should view him based on what he was able to do for this season, regardless of some of the comments that he's recently made, where sometimes you're like, just just take Ugh. the win and let's be quiet for a second here. <laughs> he is the hardest star to like in my entire, you know, coverage, coverage life. Every year, even as a fan, I just I have such a hard time rooting for this guy because of some of the things he says and uh, I'm torn here because honestly his two finals have been have been spectacular and he's been very very good and when they've needed him he has stepped up um, he hasn't been consistently great throughout both playoffs I mean he's been injured he's taken nights off there were nights in the Houston series where he didn't feel like he felt that fit at all but that's the luxury of having you know, a 73-win team behind you where you're the heated seats. You know, I mean, you, you don't always need the heated seats. So it's tough. I mean, Eddie Johnson of, of XM, uh, Sirius XM NBA was giving me crap because I was actually giving Durant credit, which is, you follow me on Twitter, is a pretty rare occurrence. But, I, you know, I couldn't help but just be in awe of his Game 3. You know, I thought he's fantastic in Game 3 in a game where, you know, his team didn't really show up and Steph had just an all-time awful game. And Eddie Johnson was saying, like, Josh, you're missing it. Like, this guy isn't getting double teamed at all. 
that's getting double teamed. You know, Durant is someone who should be getting doubled every, you know, time he's hot, but he's not because he's on this team. And again, it's like another lesson in privilege with the situation that he's in and not a lesson where like in, in his individual strength of a player. And, and I thought that was kind of like ridiculous and cheating Durant some, but I, I mean, there is something to it. I, it's really tough to look at these two rings and these two finals MVPs and just tally them up. Okay. Like, okay. LeBron had two in two years and Durant had two in two years. You know, it, it just doesn't feel like they hold the same weight. That said, I mean, you look down the list of all-time greats, you look at that top 20, and you're like, would I really take Jerry West over Kevin Durant? Probably not. Would I really take Julius Irving over Kevin Durant? Probably not. Like, he, he, he's, he's in that top 15 to 20 range for me at the moment, and it, it doesn't feel good because you feel kind of like he skipped the line, like these accomplishments are, are hollow relative to, you know, his all-time peers, and yet he's still up there putting the numbers, getting the same results, and, and he can't really take that away from him. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a tough battle and contrition, self-contrition for me. Yeah, it's hard not to say where was this two years ago, sir, especially after some of the comments that he makes about legacies and being on a specific team and not having to be the superstar if you're playing around other great players and if you are playing around other great players it's harder to show your worth than it is if you're playing with scrubs it's better sometimes to just (laughs) think about what he did than read about what he has to say about what he did I, I guess is an easy way to put it is Steph keeping up with Kevin Durant as far as what his legacy is becoming now with three titles the two MVPs, a unanimous one at that, what he's been able to do with this team, how beloved he is in Golden State. Where is he standing now with what he was able to do and, and the final end result that'll be on his resume from this season? I honestly, like this year, it feels like Durant kind of hurt him. Um, you know, like, let's look the last two years. If Durant's not there, pretty, I mean, very plausible that. That Curry has not only another championship but another MVP, but between the two years, because they're relying on him every night to score, you know, thirty plus points and and do the extraordinary things that we're used to seeing him do, um, or we're used to seeing him do during his MVP years. So, I mean, add another MVP, add another title. He probably has a Finals MVP without Durant there. Uh, he, he he. This is part of the sacrifice. It wasn't just you know giving up shots in the moment and being the only star in the bay. It's the, these resume notes, these uh, anecdotes from from these series. Uh, he's given them up a bit to Durant, and I mean, he was the one that was hurt this postseason. Uh, he missed some time. You know, they beat the Spurs without him. They had a great first game against the Pelicans. I think one of the best overall games they played was Game One against New Orleans without Steph. It, 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 he, he's up there too. I mean, he. But the case has gotten harder. You know, if Steph has three MVPs and three titles with a finals MVP on his own. Like that holds, I think, more weight than, you know, three with, um, with no finals MVP and, and, and only two MVP awards because people are going to look back and discount both of these guys are playing together a little bit. And I, I think Curry is very much on track to be the second best point guard ever behind Magic Johnson. You'll probably still get there, but it's going to take a little bit more time. LeBron ended up getting his six in the NBA Finals, but unfortunately it was in the loss column and not the win column as he would like to have it and as plenty of people would like to have seen happen. 
I don't think that this year really affected anything regarding his legacy to a severe point to sway people either way. I was just curious to know how you felt about it, whether this loss in the finals, especially getting swept for a second time in his career in the finals, puts a damper against what he's been able to do, even though his stats were there for this finals, where this sort of puts him now when it comes to the LeBron James conversation, if it switches anything at all. Yeah, let me let me pose you this question because it's been rattling around in my head for for a little bit here. Can you... Can your legacy reverse um, by 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 on court play? So like no off season scandal, no you know political you know ambitions after after the career. But can your can your legacy actually be undone? Like for for LeBron to be you know one two or three for most people heading into this postseason, is it like even I, I don't think him losing in the final should hurt his legacy at all. You know, if you're not a talking head, that's really dumb. But let's say he threw up just a total flop in his 15th year and they've gotten uh, eliminated by the Pacers. I mean, can your legacy really be undone? What's interesting about LeBron, I think he's the perfect example or the most recent example of a player that went from such a villain when he went to Miami and they had the big ceremonies and he was winning championships with D-Wade to coming to Cleveland, winning their first championship in over five decades, and now going up against this juggernaut Warriors team that you either love or hate, where he's becoming the opposite of what a villain would be. The narrative, I think, is changing in his favor just because of how good these Warriors are. And and I know a lot of people will argue about the wins, and if we're talking goats, we should be talking championships. But I think what has helped him, if anything could help him, is just how good these Warriors are, where it comes down to what really can he do. And and from going from a villainous type of player, almost hated by many in the NBA, not respected for what he was doing, to now people taking a step back and being like, why did we think that way? Why haven't we been appreciating what he's been able to do? is something that I think will help him, and I don't see that stopping as his career continues to go. If he can stay anywhere close to what he did this season for three or four more years and the Warriors' core stays the same, I think in a way it might help just just based on what he's had to do to even get close to where he wants to be. Yeah, it's tough because, like, honestly, offensively, I don't think we've ever, like, his athleticism isn't where it was when he was in those Miami. Um, his defense, where it wasn't where it was when he was in the middle of his career, but he is so polished offensively. Like a thirty-five-nine-nine playoff run is just insane. This team sucked. I, you know, I mean, like we don't need to be polite. This team was very bad. George Hill that was supposed to be someone who would come in, give them a little bit of secondary creation, knock down shots. He didn't do anything. J.R. Smith is only there to hit shots. Lou insisted on playing him over Hood, and and he had halfway through Game Seven. In Boston, he had hit four shots in the series in Boston. And I, I, they just they were a bad team, and and he carried them over over three three good playoff squads, not great, but good good teams. And the Raptors, you know, had their own issues. We could talk a whole bunch about them, but overall, like this was a very special playoff run. And in my mind, I think it was an accomplishment just to get them to the finals. Unfortunately, I think as we get further and further away, the context will die and talking heads will talk about the three and six record and how LeBron couldn't get over the Warriors. And 
I don't know if that will help him. I, I am a little worried that people will, you know, let's say he loses against the Warriors next year at some point. People are going to be like, well, LeBron can never get past the Warriors. So is he really the best ever? And I can already see these terrible takes coming, you know, without the context and what he's already accomplished previously and the fact that, like, what other player in his 16th year is expected to be arguably the best team ever? I mean, it's just an insane bar, but but that is the type of, you know, rhetoric that usually follows him. Plus, depending on where he ends up or who ends up around him next season, the narrative could switch to the, well, he couldn't win alone. He needed to go to X team and win with X players because who he brought over to Cleveland didn't matter. And there'll always be the doubters and the haters. I've evolved a little bit, though, from the Miami Heat dislike to the step back and go, I don't think we're ever going to see this again, at least in our lifetimes. And that's a nice place to be. Whether or not you want to compare to Michael Jordan and whomever it is, it's just nice to put all that aside and watch something happening in front of your eyes, regardless of your takes on where it stands and just appreciate what's happening with it. That does bring us to the summer of LeBron part whatever we're on now because the conversation will be surrounded by him until he decides whether he'll stay in Cleveland, whether he'll test the market and what team he'll end up going to and what players he'll end up trying to sway to come with him if he should leave or to come with him if he should stay. Do you have any gut feeling on where you think he might end up, where the best case scenario might be for him to end up or where this might all play out as we get to the end of June? Yeah, I honestly think the the best spot for him is still Philly. Um, you know, he, he stays in the East. He gets to go to the conference finals ten times in a row, which would be one heck of a of a career accomplishment. Honestly, an entire decade of reaching the finals would be amazing. But I think you know, like the fit is going to be awkward. There will be growing pains with you know Embiid slowing the pace down and posting up seventeen million times a game. There'll be growing pains with him and Ben Simmons. You know, alternating on and off ball. Simmons have actually have been having to learn how to shoot. Um, but I just think there's pieces to move. And, and LeBron doesn't go to teams that take LeBron don't stay the same. So I'd imagine, you know, you see Markel Fultz in the number 10 pick, or you see the number 10 pick in Dario Saric, or you see the number 10 pick in Robert Covington. Like that, there would be some sort of a move to add another, you know, highly regarded player to that core. Um, they would be very, very talented off the hop. I think that would put them in Boston you know, squarely in line to bat Duke it out in the Eastern Conference Finals, which would be fun. Hopefully Kyrie Irving would be healthy. I, I, I think Philly makes the most sense. Houston is just so hard to imagine uh, with, with all the cap they'd have to lose. Eric Gordon, Ariza, Quinn Capella, it wouldn't be the same team. I, I just think in a lot of ways LeBron and Harden would be overkill for each other. I, I think you'd probably be better with, you know, Harden and Paul in better pieces or LeBron and Paul in better pieces. Uh, you know, there's the rumor about Los Angeles um, with Gary Payton apparently claiming he knows LeBron's sons enrolled in Cedar Canyon School in, in L.A. And I think that's one, just as a side note, it's gross that we're, we're tracking LeBron's, you know, 13-year-old son's movements. I think that's pretty pretty messed up on a, on a kind of serious level. But if he goes to L.A., I think, you know, he's decided that it's no longer about winning championships. It's about setting up his brand and life beyond basketball, which I can respect, but it's not as a fan of LeBron, as a fan of 
the game is I'm not a fan of the Warriors and hoping somebody knocks them off. I, I hope that's not the choice. But if he goes to the Lakers, I don't expect that team to stay the same at all. I think very quickly you'll see, you know, George signs, he signs. They flip out <clears throat> Brandon Ingram and Lou Alding's contract to someone else to add a third, third year all-star, all-star. I think that team would look very different too. But just hard to imagine playing in the same division as the Warriors on a team that was in the lottery, even with big changes, is going to challenge them next year. Speaking of the Lakers, I've been looking forward to getting to this type of conversation with you as a Lakers fan and as a Kobe Bryant fan growing up. And as someone that doesn't have the greatest memory in general, and sometimes that comes in handy when it comes to Kobe Bryant, but unfortunately when the stories come out, you remember far too well what has happened throughout his career and some of the things that he's trying to sweep under the rug in recent days. We saw the article by the great Howard Beck about some eight or nine players putting out their opinions on what happened with LeBron James and how we should view him and things of that nature for his piece with Bleacher Report. Kobe came out and said that LeBron pretty much had to figure out a way to win and it's not about narrative. You want to win championships and you're just going to have to figure it out. There's been a little bit of revisionist history when it comes to Kobe Bryant uh, since his <laughs> retirement, and he seems to be steering the ship with it. I'm not sure why he's going down this path to really change some of the major things that happened throughout his career. Guys like Nick Wright, uh, guys like anybody that is involved with Fox Sports, guys that cover the NBA and aren't afraid to be a little brash with their opinions. Hey, uh, remember when <laughs> and these stories come up about Kobe where it's like, all oh, right, he did do that. So I wanted to ask you, based on some of the most recent comments, what we should really remember about Kobe and, and maybe some of this revisionist history that you can at least tell the listeners might not be as true as he would lead you to believe. Yeah, I mean, I've been pretty all over him, too. But you know what? Kobe's the ultimate competitor. And right now, he sees Kevin Durant um, unchallenged, alone, winning the league's most unaware player award, and he doesn't want, doesn't want Durant to be alone at the top. So here's Kobe firing out these revisionist quotes. And you really started a couple weeks ago, I thought, with the leadership teammates comments even before the Abeck article which is just my god like I mean Kobe was the um the I don't even know purple standard for 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 teammate treatment I mean this is a guy who literally ran guys out of town who you know got into scraps with his teammates who asked for teammates not to be on his team who requested trades because he didn't like his teammates and all, all these things and it, I, I I understand when your career ends and you look back at, at, at what you accomplished, you see things through a different lens. And I, you know, credit where credit's due, Kobe was a good player, and I think he did bring the best out of out of a lot of guys. And I, I want to say before I rip into him here that I, I think Pau Gasol thinks the world of Kobe Bryant, and the two of them really did find some chemistry synergy that people questioned would or wouldn't happen because of how Kobe was previous teammates, but they really made it work. Um, but but at the end of the day, something comes to this Beck article. Just, oh my goodness. Like, you, it, it was just a contrast to, like, every question Isaiah Thomas, even Paul Pierce, who we know isn't overly fond of LeBron James, uh, Grant Hill, everyone else was, you know, kind of in line. 
with the same kind of logic. And then there's Kobe citing 35-year-old Rashid Wallace as, you know, a similar threat as Draymond Green. Like, citing the 2010 Celtics versus this current Warriors team is just so comical. Uh, and, and for, you know, I'm going to spoil a little something from my article, but looking back to the coverage at the time of the 2010 final, there was a quote from Mark Medina of the L.A. Times at the time where he said, 10 years from now, I don't remember if people will remember how bad Kobe Bryant was in game seven, or if people will just remember that he beat the Celtics and, and like he wasn't even spectacular in that series. I mean, the team was nowhere near as good as the current warriors and Kobe played nowhere near as well as LeBron. And yet he's just sitting on the soapbox throwing stones. And then on top of it, to a lesser extent, the same day as the back article drops, Alice Kennedy drops a podcast with him on hoop site. And at one point in that podcast from Hoopsite, he is asked, you know, do you ever wonder what you and Shaq would have accomplished if you stayed together? And his answer is, well, the reality is Shaq's health was an issue. And whether it was his toe or something else, that was coming to an end. And I'm just like, are you kidding? Shaq was second in the MVP voting the year he left. He won a title the very next year with Wade. We know that Kobe Bryant thought he was the best player from the moment he stepped on the court till probably 2013. And you're telling me that if you're the best player in the world and, and, and Wade could win a title and Shaq could almost win an MVP, he wouldn't have got at least one more together? Like, I, I, just everything he's, he's said in the last couple years, even since he's retired, has had a little bit of like pro Kobe, let's repair my legacy, perfect my narrative spin to it. And, and I think people... I am impressed though that people weren't having it. You know, whether it was Ryder, Cowherd, or Twitter, people just did not want it. Yeah, I think he didn't wait long enough, and I don't think he realizes the vines in NBA Twitter to make sure that something like that wouldn't get off the ground. That's something that you have to do when you're like 70 or 80 years old, and maybe people will be a little foggy about some certain things. But even as much as I love Kobe, some of the stuff that he said, it's hard to remember. Like, well, Shaq was, in a sense, run out of town. <laughs> you did request to get out of L.A., but they were smart enough to say no. There's Twice, the whole yeah. not making the playoffs when Shaq left, the whole getting bumped in the first round. There's some stuff about it that doesn't sit very well. And I know he doesn't want to have that become a forefront thing and i'm sure he would like to forget it as much as lakers fans would but unfortunately it's there and as much as he was able to accomplish and as much as i think that should be his narrative continuing to bring up that sort of thing and try to have people look in the other direction maybe not be the best way to go about it and I think he should still focus on his new show detail because I think that's absolutely fascinating what he's able to see. Just let's do that for a while and not worry so much about changing narratives. Well, and it's funny too, because like, okay, one, one more quick shot. Like Kobe also gave up a three, one lead long before the Warriors made it cool to do so. Yeah. But that happened. Anyway, <laughs> I, um, I think there was like, and honestly, there was a genuine way for Kobe to answer some of these questions where people would have absolutely applauded him. Like if Kobe Bryant, like, what do you got to do? Whatever. I can't remember best questions were like, what do you do to beat this Warriors team? You know, like where he gave the convoluted BS answer about how he just found the will to win against this equally impressive old Celtics team. But if he had said, you know what, like, honestly, I was never the best at trusting my teammates. And I don't think I faced a team of this magnitude, which obviously this is not something players say easily, just pride and ego, et cetera. 
but you know you have to keep trusting your guys like if there's one thing i've learned from my career gotta trust your guys gotta try new things when you're up against you know a favorite there are there are things you can do to change change your mindset to maybe reload and come at a different angle like there were ways where he could have answered this question and still like not given like LeBron's the greatest ever quote that he obviously didn't want to give where people could have said, yeah, that's really authentic of him. Like, wow, that's really cool awareness for a player. Now he's retired to know things that he wasn't great at. And instead he was the donkey on social media for 24 hours because he went the other way and tried to revise everything. He also could have just said, no, thanks, Howard. I don't want to comment on this right now. Let, you know, let me let me just have everything sit for a couple more years, and there's plenty of time for me to give my comments out. But him not answering the last question was was incredibly telling for me. Like it was incredibly telling that Kobe answered all the other questions, and there's just no answer from Ryan from the last one. It, it wasn't a great look, and it was almost like. Kobe was still playing with the Lakers, like the competitive drive that he would have answering those questions with the Lakers still playing. Even if he is the age he is now, he would still be as competitive as he was at 20. He gave answers like that instead of someone who was able to take a step back from his career and, and sort of view things a little bit differently than you would with that competitive spirit. But that's just how he is. And that's how he'll always be. It, w- it wasn't a good look for a couple of days. <laughs> we can leave it at that. So I wanted to touch on to get you out of here, your latest piece for Hoop Mag, though saying peace, I guess, doesn't really do it justice for as deep of a dive as you took for it and as many of words as you had to write for it. So you ranked every NBA finals from 2000 to 2017 in terms of how memorable they are in the grand scheme of things. And we're talking before part two officially goes to print, but once this show comes out, people will have been able to see it. So I don't know how deep you want to dive into maybe what your top five or top three are. So people still have to click the article at least, but just talking overall about how you are able to get to your end conclusions, how much work went into that and just what you were able to put forth in giving us something exciting, at least dealing with the NBA finals in 2018. Yeah, the uh, the inspiration for this article was how uninspiring the current finals was. <laughs> you, you had a little bit more time on your hands, I guess, right? When Steph Curry shot 3-16 or 16, um, in the game three and the Warriors still won, I just think in my head, like, man, there's just this final stinks. Or, like, when was the last finals that stunk this bad was, was the thought that, that kind of got this going. And, I mean, it's a subjective list. And I have my own little biases and, you know, finals that I like more than others. So that, I mean, that, that's part of it. But honestly, this was incredibly tiring. <laughs> this is not one of the, you know, columns you whip out in two hours and, uh, you know, you, you, you have a good thing for your buck return. I, this is what, so I, I probably put 30 hours into these two, two parts over the last week. It's just, I, I wanted to include, you know, I, I ranked them subjectively. Um, but then I wanted to like cover the results in the narrative at the time. So I was trying to find, you know, quotes from, from established writers, you know, covering the beats or at, or at national outlets at the time. And I just got sucked up for episodes. <laughs> like just reading like column after column from 2005 or 2010. But honestly, it's super enjoyable. Like I love doing that. I'm a basketball nerd. So it was really cool to read, you know, Howard Beck from, from 2009 at the New York Times or Zach Lowe from Grantland in 2011 and 
it, it was really cool in that regard. So uh, I'll give my top three. It will already be out on Hoop, uh, hoop.nba.com when, when this goes up. So my top three, and honestly, you could argue all three of these. I flipped them several times. The Mavericks fan in me definitely wanted to have 2011 first, but I, did, I didn't go quite, quite that far. <laughs> so number three, I had the 2013 Heat Spurs series. Uh, Rayon hitting the shot. You know, I, I mentioned in there, I think it's the most memorable shot of my lifetime. Uh, just a huge, huge shot in game six. That series set the tone for the next year with the Spurs revenge. You know, LeBron has 37 in the final game to close it out. Just a great, great series. I think Danny Green had the record for three pointers in the finals that series too. Great series. Uh, number two was the 2011 Mavericks over the Heats. You know, everyone hated the Heat. People hate the Warriors now. People hated the Heat more that year. They absolutely hated them. And, you know, I, I think people loved a lot of the Mavericks, like Dirk Nowitzki, Pedro Stoyakovich, Jason Kidd, Jason Terry, Tyson Chandler. You know, those were, these were veterans that, you know, had made their mark somewhere else, Sean Marion. Uh, and this was their kind of last hurrah in a lot of ways. And uh, they have this remarkable run, and then they're up against the villains. So they got even more admiration. It was like this cosmic justice being played out on behalf of the fans who were mad at what happened in Miami. Uh, so in 2011, that, that upset, uh, was number two. And then number one was 2016. I mean, I tried to argue against it in my head just because the first few games were so terrible and just blowouts either way, but a three, one first ever three, one comeback in the finals, you know, 41 and 41 from Kyrie Irving and LeBron James in game five to keep them alive at Oracle. Uh, you know, 41 in game six, the block, which is now the defining play of arguably the greatest player in basketball history's career, you know, at the end of game seven, it, it's just really, I think maybe there is some reason to be biased, but I think people will remember that one for a very, very long time. And even more so if the Warriors continue to win at this rate. Does 2018 make the top 10? I know not so much for the games, but more for the back-to-back, what Steph did with the three-point record, what KD did with the MVP. Does that enter, or or was it just that bad that we have to put it out of it? So I, I didn't rank 2018 because when I started, it was still going. Right. Um, if I had done 2018, it definitely would have been in the, the first part. So it would have been in the back 10. I, 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 I think, honestly, even I, I was thinking about this, like even 2007, where LeBron goes and he gets swept by the Spurs. Tony Parker was amazing to watch and just beat the pants off Ruby Gibson. Uh, you know, and that was kind of unexpected. Like Tony Parker hadn't come to the, the forefront as a star yet. So there was that angle. And then there was the fact that LeBron was 22 years old, you know, taking the team to the final. So everything was gravy. Like they weren't expected to win. People thought they were going to get rolled. This series was not that there was no feeling of hope there was no genuine excitement for like some you know other player to step up i mean it, it just it, it feels devoid of like a happy narrative the only thing you can sell is dominance and even in that it, it's hard to sell the warriors dominance because they didn't blow them out but every night they kind of messed around let a couple games be closer than they should have and and won because they just had that much more talent not because they worked that much harder well, we were able to get a Booby Gibson shout out into the show, so I think we've done our jobs. 
Josh, no it's, doubt. it's always a pleasure to get to chat about the NBA and get to chat about what you're doing with Hoop Magazine and being able to talk about these NBA finals, though not as exciting as we might have hoped or as the NBA community would have hoped. There still are interesting storylines and things to keep an eye on, so we will be able to do that in the offseason. Assuredly, we'll be able to keep you busy while that happens and continued success on the future projects you have going. I look forward to continuing following you and look forward again to catching up again in 2019, since I guess that's our tradition now. Oh, thank you very much. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks again to Josh for jumping on the show. We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print and hosts. For the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, which was once found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it to hold the reins here, but don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films just with a better understanding of what will be in store if you do so, along with Joe's final rating of the film compared to something or someone in the sports world. This week, Joe will break down Deadpool 2, which Rotten Tomatoes describes after surviving a near-fatal bovine attack. A disfigured cafeteria chef, Wade Wilson, struggles to fulfill his dream of becoming Miami's hottest bartender, while also learning to cope with his lost sense of taste. Searching to regain his spice for life, as well as a flux capacitor, Wade must battle ninjas and a pack of sexually aggressive canines as he journeys around the world to discover the importance of family friendship and flavor finding a new taste for adventure and earning the coveted coffee mug title of world's best lover you can find joe on twitter he's at duke mish that's d-u-k-e-m-i-c-h you can also read his movie reviews previews and ratings at cup of joe.com again that's cup of dash or hyphen or whatever you like to call it joe.com get your popcorn ready here's this week's edition of five minutes in the film room with joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. The character of Deadpool had a rough beginning back in 2009 as he entered the franchise in X-Men Origins Wolverine. Rough beginning is actually kind of an understatement as the movie got every part of the character wrong. Ryan Reynolds also portrayed him in the film as well as Wade Wilson. It wasn't Reynolds' fault. He actually did a nice job with Wade in the beginning of the film, but the writing and poor CGI would soon let the movie down. They decided to sew his mouth shut. Deadpool a.k.a. the Merc with the Mouth, couldn't talk. That's half his character. And then he was given all these powers. I mean, I knew nothing about the comics at the time, but I learned quickly that this was not Deadpool at all. I'll give the movie one thing. There's an after credit scene where Deadpool looks at the camera and says, shh, because he breaks the fourth wall. Needless to say, X-Men Origins Wolverine didn't quite spawn the planned sequel, so Reynolds jumped to the DC Universe, where he landed a leading role as Green Lantern in 2011. Again, this was supposed to kick off a franchise. The writing in CGI once again failed Reynolds, as this movie is a mess. Hard to believe that a studio that just released The Dark Knight three years earlier would somehow regress to Green Lantern. But it happened. I will give the movie one thing. Blake Lively's character is able to recognize Reynolds' character, Hal Jordan, through the small mask on his face. 
I thought that was a nice sequence that turned the Clark Kent Superman thing on its head. Also, it is where Lively and Reynolds' great real-life relationship started. And if we needed Green Lantern for that to happen, then so be it. But Reynolds wasn't done. He wanted to do Deadpool right. He knew he could do Deadpool right. Then came the leaking of the test footage. I believe we still don't know who leaked it, whether it was on purpose to try to gauge audience interest. I don't think we'll ever know. But if it was on purpose, it worked, as all of a sudden people wanted to see Deadpool. We wanted to see an R-rated superhero movie just as a change to the Marvel machine or the dour DCEU. So Deadpool was born. And it was big. I like the first Deadpool. I think it's good. I don't praise it as much as everybody else does, but it's a good movie. The marketing for both of these movies is on another level, so the first one didn't quite live up to the hype for me. But I was pretty excited to see what they would do with the second one. My favorite piece of marketing being Deadpool dressed as Bob Ross. So let's go to the tape and see what the sequel's got. Some people are born to play certain characters. Much like Robert Downey Jr. with Iron Man, Reynolds is meant to play Deadpool. His comedic timing and charm, I mean, everything just works, and I can't imagine anyone else giving Deadpool a go. The key to the sequel was going to be the characters who surrounded Deadpool, and there's a good chunk of them that do work. My favorite character in the movie is Domino, played by Zazie Beetz. Her superpower is luck, and how they shoot her sequences, especially her opening action scene, is brilliant. And Deadpool's doubting of Domino's abilities only makes it that much better and that much funnier. Josh Brolin just keeps nailing role after role, so I can't wait to see him in the second Sicario movie. Brolin plays Cable in Deadpool 2. Needless to say, if he needs someone to play an angry, grizzled father, he could do it to perfection. Brolin and Reynolds do have chemistry, which is pretty impressive considering their characters are opposites. The kid, Firefist, played by Julian Dennison, works well. The cab driver, Dopinder, has an increased role, and that also works well. So the supporting cast really elevates the film. There's also an improvement in directing with David Leitch at the helm. Attached to the John Wick franchise and Atomic Blonde, Leech knows how to shoot action and it shows. With a fighter as good as Deadpool, the movie needs a director who can keep up. Leech is that director. The plot is fine, it's just that they make a choice with the story early on and I don't think it's necessary. I don't need all the sentimental parts of the film. That's not what I'm here for. That's not what anybody is there for and as a result, those scenes are out of place. There's also a joke at the end that doesn't land and drags on what seems like an eternity. But here's the thing. The highs in this movie are so much better than the lows that I let the flaws slide. Because this movie is a blast. I liked it more than the first one. More of the jokes land for me. I was cracking up in the theater. There are also a few surprising moments that work really well. And be sure to stay for the mid-credits scenes. You won't be disappointed. I don't want to say too much else because I don't want to spoil the jokes. The bottom line, Deadpool 2 is not a better movie than the first Deadpool, but I find it more enjoyable than the first one. It's funnier, the action is better, and the supporting characters help create a more well-rounded cast instead of relying on Reynolds to carry the whole thing. The gags, references, and wit make this movie thrive. I don't agree with a few of the directions the plot takes. There's still a better movie that can be made in the franchise, but ultimately the good overshadows its flaws. I definitely recommend it. You'll have a great time. I'll compare Deadpool 2 to a touchdown celebration. Although the execution is not always perfect, the touchdown celebration is always exciting and entertaining. Also, now that NFL players can celebrate again after the rule against touchdown celebrations was lifted, it's similar to the misconception that you can't have a successful R-rated movie before Deadpool came out. There was an unwritten rule that superhero movies needed to be PG-13 in order to pull in most audience members and money. Well, 
Deadpool shattered that trend, becoming the highest grossing R-rated movie ever. And Deadpool 2 won't be far behind. Sexy. Check! Good. Check, please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Wednesday night, and also be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can also find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And can listen to a brand new show on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time by searching for Sports Radio America on TuneIn. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dabble in the NBA, dive into Major League Baseball, circle the wagons of the National Football League, whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.